You're listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. And I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, and I'm here with my co-host and fellow SPS or the School of Public Service at Boise State colleagues, Jackie Kettler and Jen Snyder. How are y'all doing today? Good. Glad to be here. All right. So there's been uh, an eclectic news week, and so we're going to try to uh, talk about a couple of different stories today. But, you know, one of the the big ones that is uh, the gift that keeps on giving to the news (laughs) cycle is uh, former White House aide Omarosa. And she gets to use just one name because she is so famous for being an Omarosa. And I can't think of any other Omarosa that's famous. Um, So uh, for our listeners who are uninformed about this story, um, she originally made her name as a reality TV contestant on The The Apprentice. I remember Uh, watching her, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Was it the first season? Yeah, I think so. Uh, And she was the candidate that, you know, in that first season that you love to hate, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And after that, built a pretty good relationship with Donald Trump. uh, And then eventually went he got elected became part of his white house um at the time or until the last uh several months was the senior african-american white house aide um and so she played a a pretty important role in that aspect uh but has was let to go under uh let go from the white house under what we'll say controversial or uh non-friendly terms and that was several months ago right she's let go yep and she has not disappeared from the limelight since (laughs) Um, and so, uh, one, uh, she has made lots of accusations against the White House, but recently she's been back in the news because she has released a book talking about her time in the White House and our illustrious president. Uh, and she's backed up some claims in that book with some very interesting tapes of talking to both our president uh, and senior White House staff. Um, and so some of those things have been very interesting. So uh, my first question to my co-host today is, what part of these tape stories do you find the most interesting Go ahead. (laughs) I find it amazing that so many people are recording their conversations with President Trump. And I suppose that, you know, you go in there, you don't know what's going to happen or you're a reality star who, you know, kind of exists in this world where you need need this information. But it's quite an interesting phenomenon to have so many people recording themselves meeting with Trump or other high staffers. Yeah. And uh, so on that point, you know, the, the conversation that was recorded with John Kelly where she gets fired supposedly took place in the situation room. And for those that have never heard that term, uh, that is the place where they, you know, plan military missions, where it's the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the head of the CIA, you know, one of the most, like, secure rooms in the country. And the Omarosa's in there with a tape recorder talking to the White House Chief of Staff. So, like, that's a huge question of security breaches. Like, how did this happen, right? And so if she's recording that, like, what else has been recorded uh, and by whom? Because clearly nothing's safe in that White House these days. So, Jim, what do you think's the the most interesting? Yeah, that was my overall impression. Was I thought? I think it feels to me like we have just been lucky so far. I mean, I remember reading the sort of tell-all book, Fire and Fury, earlier this year, and thinking, man, you have a lot of people who are really angry with each other and they're sort of set up in these feuds and they're trying to oust one another there's lots of motivation to sort of gather intel and information to implicate people you're working with and on top of that it seems to me like it took a really long time for there to be good processes and procedures around security in the White House Mm -hmm. so even I think to this day uh, President Trump uses his own cell phone which is unsecured to talk to a lot of friends uh, and family and so it just occurred to me, especially following all of the dust up around, you know, Hillary Clinton's email servers, that it doesn't seem we're out of the woods. 
woods yet on a lot of those sort of um, inside baseball, hyper secure things coming into the public domain. Yeah. And so uh, Amoroso's book isn't, you know, isn't unusual, right? Because a lot of White House staffers leave the White House under good or bad terms, then write these tell-alls, um, just accusing their their colleagues of all kind of things, which may or may not be true. Although many usually wait until the president is out of office, yeah, right? Yes. Not, a lot of Obama tell-alls are coming out just now. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, what what makes this unique is she has the tapes to, to back mm-hmm. them up. So I, I wonder how much of this is driven by her knowing that they were going to deny, deny, deny everything she said. Um, and so certainly uh, with the, the Trump administration and their fake news accusations, uh, I wonder if that's fueling the fire on some staffers feeling they need to create this evidence to support their side of the story, otherwise get thrown under the bus. Uh, particularly if you listen to the John Kelly tape, um, he makes veiled threats to the point that go along with this or we're going to ruin your reputation, right? Well, and this is also a president who um, is making um, staffers sign non-disclosure agreements, which is not usual um, for an elected official, um, an executive. This is unusual. And so um, it does speak to some degree that there may be people concerned that they will (laughs) not be um, taken seriously with some of the things that come out of the office or that the, the administration will push back. So uh, clearly, there's a there's a question here uh, about trans- uh, transparency versus security, and the transparency is an interesting one because we're going to get to that a little later in one of our other segments. So when it comes to the inner workings of the White House, what do we value more, like security and people not recording the president, or us all knowing what's going on? Can I also say there's a third element, which is dignity, like the dignity of the office, mm-hmm. um, and I I think it's something a lot of folks have been concerned about under President Trump is that he's come in and flouted so many norms about how a president should behave or a White House should function. I imagine there are folks who have welcomed that. They sort of see it as a let's burn this thing down and build something different. Um, But for me, uh, you know, I was most concerned not so much with her book or the tapes themselves, but with the president's response, calling her a dog Mm -hmm. on Twitter. Everybody has probably seen that in the news. But that sort of um, willingness to sling mud in the sort of lowest, most debasing forms, um, and really in a racialized form in this case, I think is the thing that bothers me the most. I mean, of course, there's security concerns. Of course, there's transparency concerns. But I just keep thinking about what is the long-term impacts of this kind of stuff on the presidency. Well, going along with that, Jen, what is your perspective on the press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, refusing to deny that Trump may be recorded somewhere using the N-word, right? Uh, Which I think surprised a lot of people that she wouldn't just flat out deny there's not a recording of him saying that. It is surprising that she wouldn't flat out deny it because... I don't think having receipts has ever really stopped this <laughs> White House, right? We had the uh, the Access Hollywood tape that didn't seem yeah. to do anything to their prospects of, in terms of gaining the presidency. Uh, I'm not sure that sort of facts and evidence matter a lot to Trump's base. So, yeah, I'm not sure that uh, I was surprised by that or that I think there will be any consequences. So my only read on that situation, and I don't know if this is a particularly good one, uh, is that she is the press secretary is tired of being made look like a fool because mm-hmm. um, that is essentially what's happened over the last year. And she goes, this categorically didn't happen. And then somebody goes, oh, what about this tape? What about this picture? What about this email? What about this tweet? And she looks like a fool. Um, and so I 
get there because you know the rumors are that she's looking for a way out that mm-hmm. she's tired of it and so maybe she's looking to rebuild her reputation or maybe look a little less like a fool in the next couple of months as she looks like a job uh, looks for a job now i have no real evidence to back that up or she heard the tape right before she went yeah. out there and knew, <laughs> knew yeah. it was coming <laughs> maybe so i mean all of those are possible but yeah i, I would say from a white house and, and Sanders, I don't think is a particularly good press secretary, but she is good at denying and she goes out there in Stonewall. So I was really surprised that she wouldn't just deny. All right. So I think, uh, unfortunately, we have to take a brief break. You're listening to Radio Boy or the Big Tent on Radio <laughs> Boise. Hi, this is Bree, psychic death witch. And this is Emily, regular witch. <laughs> this is Taco Cat. And we're Taco Cat. <laughs> You're listening to Radio Boise 89.9. And 93.5 FM, community radio for Boise and beyond. All right. So you're back with the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Um, So in our last segment, we were talking about uh, the White House, national politics, uh, the very interesting tapes from uh, what former White House aide Omarosa. Uh, so we're going to take a little different direction, um, but continuing along with the idea of dignity and integrity and <laughs> political officials. Uh, and there's been an extra, an interesting story that's come developed, I guess, over about the last week and a half uh, about a, a candidate, a political candidate in Florida named Melissa Howard. So she ran, she was running uh, for the state house um, and made this broad uh, claim that she had a college degree from uh, Miami University in Ohio. Well, somebody called her out on it. Uh, and so her response was to post a picture of her on Facebook with the college, like holding her diploma. Well, the university responded by pointing out several inconsistencies, like not one or two, <laughs> several inconsistencies uh. about why that diploma wasn't real, um, why they had no record of her, and generally uh, that she was lying about having a college degree. And can we just say that the picture she posted, it's like, it looks like it's in a nice suburban home. She's seated on the couch. Her mother is seated on the other side and in between them is this giant diploma and like a nice frame yeah (laughs) it's really set up so she gets called out the university calls her out on this uh and then the campaign's response from her campaign pain manager is essentially we're not going to respond to fake news well fast forward three days and they responded by her admitting that she made it all up and that she was dropping out of the race uh so an interesting course of events there and i I think uh, one of the big questions and one that me and jackie were discussing earlier is is it really worth lying about having something like a college degree when it comes to this in your election campaigns well, especially she had attended several years of the university, so it wasn't like she had only gone for a semester. She was probably pretty close to finishing, which really is like, what's the difference between saying, you know, I went several years, life got in the way, I had to, you know, stop, versus lying about having a degree that you don't. It's like an appealing working class story. We all know lots of people that's happened mm-hmm. to, too. Yeah. yeah. So what is gained by uh, lying about that? Is that your That's your question, right, yeah. Luke, is what do you get by... Uh, by lying and saying that you have a college degree when you don't. And I think Jackie's probably the expert in the room on these issues, but I mean, how important is a college degree when you're talking about a state legislative candidate, right? And is does the lying, the benefit you get out of there worth the risk of getting called out? And I, I think one thing in this case, gender might play a role mm-hmm. in that women um, candidates do tend to um, be more qualified, perhaps in a concern of facing more barriers or facing um, pushback. And so they do tend to be very qualified. So maybe she wanted to make sure that she had all these qualifications that people weren't 
going to dismiss her um, because she was a woman. Um, it could also be, you know, for the, I don't know, I'm not familiar with the particular constituency, um, if it would make a, a difference, but whether or not she had a degree or went to university several years doesn't really seem like that big of a, you know, a difference in order to lie about it. I mean, this happens all the time, though, right? I mean, we hear stories of university presidents and Mm -hmm. military commanders and folks running for office who plagiarized their dissertations or who said they had a degree in a certain area when they didn't. um, We've had Ryan Zinke, who's Secretary of the Interior, has been accused of inflating his experience as a geologist, for example. This sort of thing happens all the time, this sort of inflation of reputation. And I think maybe it's just as simple as... um, reputation matters and we want to have those you know credentials behind our name well and so going along with the zinky part of this is the recently the secretary of commerce has has been accused of inflating his wealth which is interesting because inflating his wealth yes because forbes says he's probably worth about 200 million but he claims to be a billionaire so that just i mean might be 800 million dollars but that seems probably marginal to most americans that have no idea what the difference in that wealth is right so what's the claim like what's the purpose of lying about that part now the, pre- the president has done the same thing, right? There's yeah. been really good reporting about that as well. Yeah. yeah. And so what's interesting, at least in those two examples, those aren't necessarily verifiable, right? Um, it's it's very hard. And if you've read, there's a couple, been a couple of exposés about the reporting of, of Trump's wealth, and particularly when it comes to, to private real estate, how difficult it is to determine these things. So maybe like you can lie about that. Nobody will really know, right? But when it comes to a college degree, like that is so easily verifiable. Um, interesting, I read an article earlier that I think it was uh, Monster.com or one of the other online job sites said that they've found uh, inconsistencies in about in 55, 60% of online job applications that they couldn't confirm. Now, some of those inconsistencies are small, like graduating with a higher GPA. Some of them are big, like I actually graduated from college when I didn't. So maybe this is just human nature. Maybe it's just our impulses are to inflate, inflate. or 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 make up i mean like if what you say 55 percent, like that's that's actually unusual to be truthful on your resume which is kind of amazing that's wild yeah and that it's worth the risk inflation's worth the risk of being found out yeah well you know what i maybe there are certain bias between the three of us in this room because we're all professors uh, at the school of public service in boise state <laughs> our, our, the dean made sure that we work that into every show uh but you know we live in a world where where paperwork matters right um i mean still I probably we're probably some of the few people when we apply for jobs we have to submit academic transcripts right um, and so that paperwork and all of that stuff really matters and we still look at it and universities confirm all this stuff but yeah in the private marketplace that doesn't happen as much so uh, maybe this is just a trend that you know everybody does it and nobody gets caught or so rare that people are willing to do it but then you know it, it's definitely a lot different in the age of social media right because mm-hmm. uh, essentially this candidate didn't get caught because she made the claim she got caught because she put the degree on facebook which got the attention of the university which then started looking at the degree and said wait there's all these inconsistencies let's start re- like where why she claimed this how is she getting here right I have to uh, make a digression to tell you both that the diplomas that are hanging on the wall in my office at Boise State are both incorrect. 
<laughs> so uh, when I went to the College of Idaho, there was a brief interlude. Those of you who are Yotes who are listening will understand what I'm talking about. There was a brief interlude where it was called Albertson College of Idaho. Oh. And so I went there during that brief interlude. And so my diploma says Albertson College. After I left, they changed it back. <laughs> and guess what? My graduate school did the exact same thing. So you could pay like, money to get diplomas that have the correct institution's name on them. But I, I never did. So I mean, I actually kind of I would I'd like it like being kind of incorrect, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I saw something on um, social media recently where somebody uh, showed that there was a diploma for I forget which university, but they there was a typo that had been on there for decades. <laughs> so <laughs> we universities are not infallible no. either when it comes to these sorts of things. Well, you know, Jen, that probably works in your favor, right? Because uh, this lady got caught because. Uh, Basically, a, a different dean had signed her degree than who should have. So probably, you know, if we go back and question, at least you'll have the right name and we can historically fact check you, right? Because somebody that wanted to fake it would get the wrong name on there. So that probably works in your favor. I guess the question for me, Jackie, is how sort of fatal are these sorts of things, do you think, now? Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to get caught. Um, I think, I mean, we've seen some people in the administration, the you know, White House, be fine, continue to serve. Um, here, because it got so much attention, it really did kind of, it became an issue and she had to pull out of the race. I, you know, I think it probably depends on the situation, um, but sometimes people get away with it without any problem. I was reading about one CEO who was kept on because he was too valuable, <laughs> even though he'd made up his academic credentials. He was doing a good job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so maybe if you're at that federal level and you're um, valuable enough to the administration, you're more insulated, but maybe at the state level, and if you're an unproven candidate, you're more vulnerable. Yeah. All right, you're listening to uh, The Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX, 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. Um, and so uh, we've been talking about uh, politics, integrity, accountability, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and so I think in this last segment, we're going to bring it to uh, something that's a little bit more local to Idaho. And Jackie uh, has uh, some an interesting story to present to us. Yeah. And, you know, one thing, one reform that's often brought up as a concern for when we have um, these ethical concerns is transparency in government, which would be, you know, shining a light on the government activities, making it information clear and available so that we can kind of see what our government's doing, um, you know, um, have a good idea of where conflicts might lie or, or just kind of what's going on. Um, Idaho tends to rank pretty well in some terms of transparency, like our budget process is very transparent. Um, we have like JFAC who goes through and they're, you know, evaluating kind of each element of spending, right? But in other forms, um, we're much weaker and lower compared to other states like Montana. And one and some exciting news to come out um, last week was that the Secretary of State has announced that we're getting a new um, election management um, software. And so that should make it our reporting of elections, um, voting information, campaign finance lobbying um, more easier, easier for us as citizens to access, easier for journalists and academics to use. Um, so this is an exciting kind of step forward in transparency here at the state. But we normally, so there are certain areas where we do well in transparency and other areas where we don't? 
Yeah, and well, I mean, one reason we don't, um, many states have a separate ethics commission that are, actually oversees the reporting of things like campaign finance, lobbying disclosure, making sure there's not ethical violations. Here in Idaho, we don't have that. It's housed under the Secretary of State's office. One, it's it's a, pro- a proposal has come up several times to create an ethics commission, and I think it did last year out of the campaign finance working group. Um, but of course, commissions need funded or offices need funded. And so that's kind of held back progress there. I mean, if you were cynical, you would say, uh, well, these politicians are refusing to fund or to vote for some of these uh, ethics initiatives because they're engaging in behaviors they don't want found out. Is that the right interpretation, do you think? I mean, I think that would be, yes, a very easy interpretation to make. And yet it doesn't necessarily seem that you know, there's a large amount of corruption. We talked a couple weeks ago about how Idaho ranks pretty low in terms of corruption um, for public officials misusing or personally benefiting from government funds. But there's always the concern that things could be easily hidden or we have no idea about what's happening. So is there this sense that this is seen as sort of like burdensome regulation that's really unneeded in this area? Yeah, I think that would be one argument, right? Like, we don't have much of a problem. We don't really need to work um, to improve um, levels of transparency. So kind of related to that, I mean, of course, putting all this data out there is only useful in creating transparency if the public uses it. So is there this, I guess, need, this want, this demand for all this data? Or is this kind of a, I mean, basically to say, is this citizen driven, citizen demanded? Or is this really coming from the government that wants to try to put this in place? I mean, I think it's probably journalists and, and scholars who have been pushing probably for more of this since we're, you know, that tends to be the communities that go through the data and then share it with the public more so. But we do have citizens who use it. And like this is going to help update our ability on finding um, what poll we go to, things like that. And so it should really help for citizens wanting to engage with the government more, too. I mean, it seems to me that one thing that's interesting about Idaho is we don't have a strong culture of sort of public interest groups the way Mm. states maybe more back east like Vermont might have. Um, And maybe that comes out of a sort of more individualistic culture Mm. or has to do with our more conservative and libertarian roots. But um, I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that there hasn't been as many pushes for this either. Sure. I think that makes sense. I think, you know, we're also a pretty rural state. Mm -hmm. um, And in smaller areas, you may easily know what's going on. As opposed to in a larger city, it's kind of tough, um, perhaps, to kind of know what's going on. So there there may also be some differences there among, you know, kind of pushes for it in that regional versus urban. Oh, that's a really good point. So if you have a bunch of small towns, like in East, Eastern Idaho or or north of here, and then you require them to do a bunch of reporting, I'm sure that would feel burdensome. Mm-hmm. And everybody in town knows what's happening anyway, or you have that sense. Yeah, yeah so it seems sort of like a strange fit um, outside of the big cities. Well, and certainly, uh, you know, that burdensome regulation, I imagine a lot of those small towns, it probably seems like more direction from Boise. And I, I guess we, mm-hmm. we all know that there's this rural-urban divide really in every state, but particularly in Idaho where Boise is a very growing region and these rural communities feel like maybe it has to, some too much power sometimes. I feel like there's probably some pushback from small governments to like, wait, the state wants to know, Boise wants us to do what? Like, they're going to use this as, you know, an opportunity to, to create more control, right, or centralized power. And so that's got to create some pushback as well. Yeah, that's really interesting, the tension between the, the city and the state. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, and so one example, and every time transparency uh, comes up, I always think of the example uh, of about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, Virginia tried a pilot program of putting their budget data online, and it only lasted about a year because it was online and they got so many questions, state legislatures got so many questions about it. Uh, and so then they took it down. Now it's they've replaced it, and it's all that information is online as a commonplace in most states. But at the time, they were one of the leaders in the, in the country on it, um, and they found out that was not particularly a great idea if you are trying to do some certain things with the budget. Um, particularly when it comes to earmarks. Well, and it brings up an interesting point. For many reformers, transparency is a number one goal. And in uh, Supreme Court decisions like Citizens United, their argument was that it wasn't going to be detrimental to elections because of transparency and that we'd know. But there is a push by some to um, reduce transparency because they think it's actually harming trust in government. It's harming, there's like, it can harm people who engage in politics. So there's this interesting push right now um, from some for less transparency. Meaning because people see things but they don't fully understand them and they misinterpret them or they can gum up the works with lawsuits and things like that? Well, so for here, I guess, you know, the Virginia legislators were probably getting a lot of questions about the budget that maybe they weren't quite ready for. But a lot of it's in campaign finance where um, in um, Justice um, Thomas has brought up this argument is that people make large donations and then people may um, push back against that individual, like picket their work place Mm -hmm. um, because of their donation, which is free speech. Um, So there's some interesting arguments here about what should be transparent, what shouldn't, um, and the consequences of that. Yeah, I think there's probably, uh, for the public that is might be mildly engaged. I mean, we see these stories come out all the time and, and you jump on, you see one thing on Fox News and you jump on it and then that's the thing you're, you're railing about. But that's one quote unquote data point in a much larger picture of what's going on politically. So, I mean, certainly if you're just looking at like, oh, wait, you know, this politician just got a big check from this one person and not necessarily looking at it in the larger context of, you know, that politician's policy stances, where they've gotten other money from and all these other things, like it might be kind of misleading to a lot of ways. So I think maybe one of the questions there is, can the public understand this data in any type of way? Like, do we need to help them interpret it? Um, or are they capable of just having this data dumped to a large extent and, and figuring it out for themselves? Yeah, I mean, maybe another argument for the important role of non-governmental groups. You mm-hmm. mentioned journalists. We talked about public interest groups as well, because they often have the the staff or the ability to make sense of some of those things in context. Help interpret it. Yes. All right. Well, um, I think that is the show for us uh, today. Thank you for listening to The Big Tent. I hope that you will go on Twitter and become a follower of ours at Big Tent Radio. You can also find us on Facebook at Big Tent Radio. Thanks so much for listening today. Bye, Luke and Jackie. We'll see you next week.